Welcome back to Sam Explains It All, a multimedia project meant to help you analyze the things you love. My name is Sam, and today we'll be looking at Suburban Living, the depictions of suburbia in media. is my co-host, Maya Ward-Caldwell, who is my sociology friend and a specialist from Albright College. Maya, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of your background? Uh, well, my name's Maya Ward-Caldwell. I'm a sociology major and history minor at Albright College. I'm currently a senior. I just really love talking about social issues and problems and the historical context surrounding them. So I thought, hey, why not do Sam's podcast, you know? So one of the reasons I brought you on, Maya, is that I think you have a pretty good grasp of urbanization and the different aspects that go into it. And I really wanted your different ideas because for the podcast and anyone listening to, I, Sam, am a white woman who grew up in kind of the offskirts of suburbia, not quite a traditional one. It's not quite rural, but it's definitely, it, it's not quite suburban. It's that in between. Uh, so my background in this is vastly different compared to you, Maya, which do you want to tell us a little bit about where you grew up? So I am from a very small city that's quite close to D.C. And um, I also am from a low-income neighborhood, but I also went to um, a pretty affluent majority white uh, private school for the for most of my schooling until I went and left for college. So I have a uh, interesting idea of what suburbia is, I feel like, due to my kind of educational background as well as my uh, personal residential life experiences. So in just for clarity and understanding sake, both of us don't have quite the traditional suburban background. Uh, I would have vastly closer to it than you, I believe. But both of us have been touched and influenced by it in our education, in our media, and other various elements of our life. Am I correct in saying that? Oh, I'd very much agree with that, yes. Awesome. So, to get into this topic, we actually have to reel it back. So, we inevitably are going to be talking about modern-day suburbia, but we have to talk about where suburbia came from. Because it really didn't come out of the groundwork until after World War II. So I'm going to start off by explaining some of the background, and then we're going to be getting into the sociology and politics of it. To start off, uh, Maya, what do you know about the GI Bill? It could just be like a one sentence or whatever vague knowledge you have about it. Uh, see, you've explained this to me before, but I'm really just thinking GI Joe at this point. Something <laughs> with income. <laughs> I I have talked about the GI Bill with a number of people, and do you know how many people have told me like GI Joe? <laughs> it's so many. I don't. I get it, but also Jiminy Cricket and Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, that's okay. So the GI Bill promised to include a provision for such benefits as unemployment, insurance, funding for higher education, employment training, and home loans. 
And this came after World War II. So basically the long and short of it is that soldiers coming out of World War II were promised all of these things, chances to basically get back into the world uh, after the war. This is stated by Mark Bolton in Failing Our Veterans, the GI Bill, and the Vietnam Generation. And what this ensured was that basically people coming out of the war had a chance to get their feet back up because they were given money, they were given opportunities to take out loans, to build houses, and all of that. Over 4.3 million veterans took advantage of the low-rate home loans. And this is by Bolton, again, in the same book. Now, the key factor here is that, one, all of these people coming out of the war were buying money for housing. So they were going into newly developed areas where infrastructure and city planners were deciding how to house all these people in such a quick turnover who had a lot of money, which is where the suburbs popped up from. But here's the kicker about the GI Bill in particular is that Representative John Elliott Rankin, who was basically one of the big founders of this GI Bill, was wildly racist. He stated when he argued for the bill, it had to be a matter of local control and states' rights. So the long and short of it is that the local states, especially ones that had anti-Black messages and ideals, they just said no. No to home loans, no to job placement, except for the most menial positions. Blacks were also pushed away from GI-sponsored home loans, which enabled white vets to own property that they could then pass down to their children and grandchildren. In the summer of 1947, 3,000 VA home loans were issued in Mississippi, with only two of those loans being granted to black veterans. This is by Shannon Luber's manual in the inequality hidden within the race-neutral GI Bill. In the framework of it, it was kind of stated that this was an opportunity for all veterans. But John Elliott Rankin, who again is this extremely racist representative, ensured that there was a way to deny it to many, many, many people. That's where this all starts is those home loans because those home loans created generational wealth. If someone came back from World War II, they got the money to build a house and then they could pass it on to their children and their grandchildren and so on and so forth. Oh, how do you feel about that, Maya? That's like the big background of this. There's definitely more, but that's where this all starts from. I mean, it speaks to sort of how inherent just structural inequalities in America are. While this is extremely racist, uh, it it's also... <sighs> So the interesting thing about the GI Bill is that they marketed it. And this is a little bit of a side tangent, but I think it's important to talk about is that they marketed this bill as an opportunity to help veterans. Like it was supposed to be how the how the politics, how the politicians stated it is that like, hey, we we saw how hard you're fighting and you fought for our country. And so we want to give you this opportunity for fighting for our country. The reality of it is, is that they were actually trying to rebuild the economy and the easiest way to rebuild economy is to give a ton of money to a lot of people because, you know, they'll spend it. When later wars came, especially the Vietnam War, a lot of these people who came back from Vietnam were like, okay, cool, where's our money for going to war? And the government was like, uh, ooh, yeah, 
the thing is, is that, like, mm, we don't really need to rebuild our economy, so no money. And, of course, in later generations, more groups of varying people started enlisting more. Obviously, it was a predominantly white populace that enlisted in World War II, with a large amount of black people also enlisting, but as later years went on, drafts were created, things like that, it became a more diverse grouping of people. And so... In later opportunities to gain the same amount of generational wealth, it was denied to these larger populations. That, again, this is that's not even in my notes. That's just something I learned from all of this. But there's, it really was a once-in-a-lifetime situation that has not popped up ever again. So all of suburbia is almost stuck in this 1940s generational wealth. Which is quite insane to think about. Yeah, absolutely. Because where where do you progress from there and honestly like if they had been very upfront at the beginning stating like no we need to restart the economy like here's money i i don't know what it would have done but honestly knowledge that in 1940 when we were in the great depression and they were like yeah let's just give money away and that did fix the economy well you know a little as uh, as someone who is has student loans and you know <laughs> it's a little it's a little on the nose right now, don't you think? <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? So a, a couple more things about suburbs is that there have been a number of case studies that have been talking about what suburbs is and has become. And this is the more analytical background of it. And then there's some more abstract cultural elements. So the long and short of it is that, Maya, can you tell me when, when I say suburbs, what do you think about? Like, just give me your thoughts right off the top of your head. The picture that is painted when I say the word suburbs. Oh, I mean, you think um, perfectly manicured lawns, white picket fence, um, very kind of American beauty, like aesthetics and um, sort of like a family like mentality of how to do being middle class, I guess, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's a reason for that. One, a lot of children's media especially and things that are often seen as childish so animation comics things like that they take a lot of depictions from suburbia and you and i being 23 and 21 yes. 20 uh, 21 respectively we're still we're starting to get into young adulthood where our media and and our analytics are shifting but we grew up on a very heavy diet of this is suburbia i mean you could you could rattle off a ton of cartoons from your childhood and most of them are suburban yeah without a doubt that's a raven the proud family yeah so on i think the one of the only outliers i can think off the top of my head is hey arnold but there's probably more but most of them oh are... ed ed and eddie that i think that was they... suburban they were in a cul-de-sac ah darn it yeah <laughs> Cul-de-sac is pure suburbs, baby. Oh. Yep. But there's a reason for that. That is purely media influence. Now, the suburbs doesn't actually exist like that anymore. In Racial and Ethnic Politics in American Suburbs by Lori Fraser Yokely, this is a case study she did. Uh, she states that popular characterizations of American sub suburban life suggests suburbans are made up largely of white upper middle income dwellers of Levittown style tract homes. This is kind of what you were keying into. This is your 
idea of suburba, suburbia. And that's my idea, too, because, again, I didn't grow up in a traditional sense of suburbia. In fact, I didn't even think I was in the suburbs until I actually analyzed what suburbia means. But in all actuality, more than half of all racial slash ethnic minority groups now reside in the suburbs of large metropolitan areas with populations exceeding 500,000 by 2000. 94% of immigrants lived in metropolitan areas, and of those immigrants, 52% lived in suburbs. It's not the same as it used to be. Like, yes, there, there are the white picket fence suburbs, but what is defined as suburbs anymore is not strictly as white families like it used to be they are far more diverse but there's still that overarching depiction of suburbia that makes it white and some suburban areas are paradoxically faced with increasing minority segregation and isolating rather than racial ethnic diversity the sub the, what this case study is stating is that the suburbs are getting more diverse but instead of approaching it with a sense of chance for diversity a lot of people are segregating within the suburbs which was already segregated like that was the whole point of it that's redlining at its finest from there basically our big statement that we have to make is that the suburbs are white and the the first point of contention that brings us at the very top is that the GI Bill which created the suburbs literally was almost always and only given to white people. Uh, another another quote, when affirmative action was white by Ira Katz-Nelson, Katz uh, as a result of the legisl legislation they passed, blacks became even more significantly disadvantaged when a modern American middle class was fashioned during and after the Second World War. Today, the once continuous colorblind standard of non-discrimination is broadly accepted. Where agreements stop is where compensatory discrimination starts. That is, where minority individuals are chosen even if white applicants have more approach appropriate qualification judged by customary measures like grades and test scores. Those two quotes are very important because there really wasn't a middle class before World War II. That became after World War II, and so you had the rich people who were largely white populations and the poor people who were white, black, Asian, Native American, so on and so forth. Like there was there was a somewhat diverse existence and poorness. But yeah. during the evolution of the middle class after World War II, all of a sudden there became a strict distinction between the somewhat partially affluent white people in the poor class and everyone else because again the middle class was created almost solely for white people yeah that's a lot like <laughs> that there's no way there's no other way to say it like if you if you look at the history of it you, you're starting with the gi bill you can't ignore it because it's what created it and the gi bill was literally created by a racist guy you know if it quacks like a duck and walks like a duck then baby that's a duck plain and simple Again, we, we have our first statement that the suburbs is white, and we've got the history to back it. But let's talk a little bit about the culture. And I think the easiest way to talk about this is through an essay I found, The Suburbs and Race, The Beach Boys Pet Sound Albums, which I, it's by Joshua Friedberg. It is so good. I 
I am so impressed by this essay. It was amazing to read. A lot of what I, I've analyzed here is really good, but if anyone has the time of day to look at this essay in particular, I would highly recommend it. Again, it's Joshua Friedberg's Racializing Rock, The 60s and the White Sounds of Pet Sounds. It is so freaking good. And I think it does what a lot of things need to do, where it's like you can still enjoy something, but you really, really do need to be critical of what it does and what it's doing. Because the first statement I want to say is that the Beach Boys, when making pet sounds, were not trying to be racist. Like, there is no... They, they're not, they don't do blackface throughout it. They don't discriminate throughout it uh, knowingly, but they don't do what is generally thought of as like the racist thing. Uh, Maya, have you ever listened to this album? I have not. This was, this was the Pet Sounds kind of experimental, or not the Pet Sounds, uh, that's a different band. This was the Beach Boys kind of experimental album. They were getting out of the surfer rock and they were getting into something different, something something completely their own that was analyzing themselves and it was this i think the lead singer's like number one thing he was the one who created it and he thought really hard about it and everything this was this was them broaching into new territory and one thing mm. that is quoted by them that they have said is we're white and we sing white they they have said that which at a surface level yes and yes you are correct you're not trying to sing a different way if you were trying to sing a different way that well that kind of be racist um and you are white boys sure so you know transitive property we're starting off at the top they're white boys singing about being white i think we can both agree about that yes you've heard a beach boys song before it's, yes i have <laughs> yeah negating what they uh they there are like they the thing about this is that in this album, they're not trying to be racist. Uh, they have in the past done some questionable things. I will, I do, I do have to say that. Like, right at the top. Like, they not, they stole the riff from Johnny Be Good in one of their songs. Did you know that? I've probably heard about it in passing before. Yeah. But a lot of that happened. Yeah, that, that, that was time like period. That yeah, was kind of the thing to do. That so was it's not very surprising. It, it's not, and that was music back then because, of course, music wasn't. It wasn't really enlisted or commodified until like the sixties and seventies. Before that, everything was. Um, it wasn't under copyright, and it wasn't under producers. Like you just made music. That's why yeah. jazz isn't technically copyrighted. Is because it was. It was a collective creation. And that's also, like, that's another argument is why so many black artists got screwed over is because technically they're trying to create for a group. But that's a that's a whole other different argument. We're talking about the white boys. <laughs> uh, so the Beach Boys, they they start off with this statement, we are white boys singing white. And they're right. Joshua Friedman ha Friedberg has this to say. Part of Rock's whitewashing included the rise of suburban isolation as a symbol of white teen angst, and the rise of the American suburbs countered the progressive developments in political movements. Scholars like Painter and Karen Brodkin have written about post-war suburbia as a space of whiteness in which restrictive covenants and other measures kept African Americans out of the suburbs. In all of that, in that statement, he shows that, like, white teen angst, this thing that this album is about, 
is purely suburbs. It's talking about the suburbs. So in that statement, he said that the suburbs is white. Now, whenever you say something is something, the suburb is, is white, you are also saying what it is not. So it, that statement states is that the suburbs cannot be black, where the problem of the Pet Sounds album truly lies. Maya, before we move on, where are we standing so far? We've, we've done a little bit of the history. We're getting into the, the sociology and politics of it. How are we standing? I'm not entirely sure what you mean, how are we standing? Like, where, I mean, I'm what fully are, in agreement with everything. Yeah, what are your thoughts on this? Do you got anything to add? Like, what are you... We're, we're talking about the white boys. And I mean, it's, from it's not particularly surprising. I'd like to hear more about what you're going to say about um, this teenage isolation. But, um, yeah, everything lines up with what I've learned between sociology and history. <laughs> Following the GI Bill, there are two things that came out of the GI Bill that we haven't talked about yet. It is, one, that the veterans of these things, like their children was what kind of formulized rock. So it's not the veterans themselves, but it's the children coming out of that that have steady homes where they don't have to go to jobs as teenagers. This is kind of the first time this is happening where a teenager doesn't immediately have to go work for a living. That was just a thing that poor people did. The other thing is that the suburbs were commercially independent, but linked by a new extensive freeway system that made living in Los Angeles particularly require a car. The suburbs required cars. So you have a bunch of kids who don't have to go get jobs, a bunch of white kids who don't have to go get jobs, and you need a car to live there. So now we have another symbol of whiteness in the suburbs. Cars and not having a job. Or time in general. You can have time in the suburbs because you don't have to go make a ton of money. So time, cars, and the suburb itself have all been distinguished as white things. One other big thing about this is that when it comes to race, another marker of historicized whiteness on pet sounds is its special focus on the individual and on individual relationships. In contrast, communal and political dimensions of individual love songs and the music of people of color, particularly African Americans. So the other thing that's good to analyze is what other music was coming out during this time. So we're in the 60s. Uh, my you have a pretty good grasp on music in general. 60s, 60 music that isn't white rock. Let's, what, what are we getting out here? Um, you're getting a lot of black artists talking about finding ways to express their feelings about the burgeoning civil rights movement. You've got mm -hmm. a lot of Nina Simone and Curtis Mayfield and the Jackson 5 and the Ainsley Brothers all kind of just talking about sort of like what's going on. Um, and and how would you like the sounds of this? So I could easily describe white rock as music that you're not you're supposed to listen to and think about, but not necessarily dance to. Those are kind of distinctions of rock versus rock and roll. In comparison, Curtis Mayfield, Nina Simone, what what are those physical distinctions? I think one of the things that's most important about that about their music is that it's it's music you can groove to but it's music that you're also really taking the time to think about, mm -hmm. if that makes sense to you. It absolutely does, because another distinction is that white rock is supposed to be an individual, an individual activity. And a lot of musical analysts, music historians have stated that black music is meant to be enjoyed and grooved to in groups. It is a group activity, which sometimes during that time, music 
people in general thought that was it undermined what was that music in particular but it actually made it what was good about it was that it was a group music thing and a lot of people have gone back and reanalyzed how people thought then and they're like wow that was super racist of them to say that <laughs> this very complex music by Nina Simone was not complex because like more than two people could listen to it and have a good time yeah I mean there's just there's um like as you know um I got really into Nina Simone um two summers ago and I just kind of just went through like her entire discography and I just fell in love with it because um, you know it's, it's blues it's jazz it's folk it's rock it's it's classical. It's it's she she does so much with her voice and it just so interested me how how she uses her voice as an instrument throughout the course of her life. And like she has songs like um titles for example like why the why the king of love is dead and that's that that song right there that's a response to the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and all these other songs like I wish I knew how it would feel to be free and um no women, no cry, and black is the color of my true love's hair, and whatever I am, you made me, and the, and the song Baltimore that you know I love as a uh, proud, proud Baltimorean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's songs like those, just as an example, that really kind of showcase exactly how much she, as an individual artist, was just trying to speak about the things that she was involved in and express the feelings that she felt in response to current events and just that's that's not that at the time wasn't really a thing that was acceptable but black art black other black artists like her made it work and that's what's so interesting about that period of music i fully agree and i think that the important thing too is that during this time when rock became white pop became black that's the other thing is pop wasn't really a thing before the 60s when pop became black and that's very important because it became black it became women popular music which is pop wasn't a thing really and all of a sudden it was being permeated by a ton of artists who were not affluent white men and so they music scholars during that time decided that it couldn't be complex like popular music was not something that was worthy of analyzing you could dance to it you could groove to it but you weren't going to analyze it because you weren't supposed to think about it yeah exactly which is so silly because and like another side note i think you'll really enjoy this do you remember when prince died and how many people like especially older this probably was more something that happened to me, but I don't know. It might have happened to you where, like, older white women were like, oh, I loved Prince so much. I'm so sad he's gone. And then they would list, like, the most common radio hit that Prince has ever created. <laughs> yes. That is, like, <laughs> and the radio hit was not about sex. And you're like, I would sit there and listen to this, and I'm like... They're like, he was so, like, he was an inspiration. And yes, he was an inspiration. I'm like, do you know how much, how sexy he was? <laughs> like, do you know how much his songs were about sex? Like, I, and listeners, hey, fun, fun little activity. Um, if you think that Prince's songs were not almost always about sex, I hate to break it to you, but he, the dude liked, the dude liked to fuck. He did. <laughs> he has a song called Come. 
No, it's called Orgasm on an <laughs> album called Come. Oh my gosh, I never knew that. It's the other way around. It is two minutes, no, three minutes of guitar riffs, uh, the crashing of waves, and the sound of Prince talking to a woman. That's it's that's amazing. That's, and amazing. <laughs> th- that's like a full album by him. Like his songs are so sexy. <laughs> and when Prince died, I saw all these people being like, "Oh, I loved him so much," and I'm like, "You didn't know him." Like <laughs> I, I didn't. I didn't really. I'm like a 23 year old white woman, but I know more about Prince than most bombs. And I'm like, <laughs> "What?" <laughs> Do you even, like, do you know how sexy he was? Do you understand? <laughs> popular music is very, it, long and short of this is that popular music gets popular for a reason. People like things that are good and made well. That's just a fact. Like, sometimes it gets proven wrong, but pop is not bad. Going back to our, our, our statement that rock is white, rock is suburbs, Therefore, the suburbs is white. Joshua Friedberg has one more statement in his essay that I think is really important. He states, when rock became white is when it became timeless and immaterial. Maya, I want your thoughts on that quote. Suddenly it has value. It can endure throughout history. It's Mm -hmm. immortalized now. Yeah. Because of its association with whiteness. It's gotten an overhaul, so now it's good. It's acceptable. It's fine to consume and support. It's also like rock became a selfish act. A lot of rock talks about one individual going through mental strife. Um, And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's really good to explore your own individual strifes. But versus a lot of the black artists that were creating during that time, where they usually talk about outward strife, like group strife in a way. A lot of the music was created as a voice for large groups of people versus one individual's voice. And that's the other problem here, too, is that rock in whiteness is a one-person activity. And so you have now a whole collection of statements where whiteness is suburbia, whiteness is cars, whiteness is rock, and whiteness is time, and whiteness is individualism. How are we thinking about all those so far? Once again, it raises the question of what and who's being left behind again. Mm-hmm. And who's being deliberately excluded. Yep. Is Again, if you state something is something, you're stating without actually saying it, something is not something. So if all of these things are whiteness, well, then they're, they also can't be black or anything else. Let's jump to a different album that is a little bit more self-aware and is kind of pokes fun at its self-awareness. We're talking about Arcade Fire's The Suburbs. So a little bit of background. It is the 2011 album of the year. Made up, the band is made up of Wynn Butler, Regine Ch- Chassain, William Butler, Richard Reed Perry, Time Kingsbury, and Jeremy Guerra. I know you've listened to this one, Maya. How? What are your <laughs> thoughts on it? Um, <laughs> funnily enough, I was actually a very big fan of the album. It's very, it's very much a album you listen to, like, in the car, coming home from, like, a beach trip. It's, it's that kind of album to me. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it's very summery and just kind of like, ah, yeah, you're doing stuff with your friends and you're road tripping and you feel young and vibrant and you just, you want to rock out and listen to things. And that's, that's another important, like, uh, you, you stated something very, very important there. Uh, it's a car album, right? Yes. And just like pulling it back, what, who, who usually gets cars? White people. Yep. (laughs) Again, Arcade Fire is a little bit more self-aware than the Beach Boys. They actually have a number of tracks on this album that kind of poke fun and are explicitly dating what is going on in comparison to the world around them. Eric Edelstein, who wrote a full book and essay on this album in particular, states, instead, it functions as a concept album eager to articulate an American ideal ingrained in the minds of those of us who grew up on the outskirts of Miami, Houston, Montreal, Chicago, and New York. So not only does Arcade Fire's The Suburbs a little bit further reaching than pet sounds was it which was kind of san francisco san diego los angeles that's it uh which was los angeles itself this is kind of more an abstract under understanding of the suburbs which again by actual analyses is not white like we think the suburbs is white and every media tells us that the suburbs is white but if you actually do a case study on the people living in the suburbs, they're not white anymore. But again, this Arcade Fire is made up of almost all white people. We have a wider spreading out, right at the beginning, we have a wider spreading album reaching a bigger audience that is somewhat aware of the diversity in suburbia, but they still are a white band singing about living in the suburbs. So one of the songs on the album, Take the Well and the Lighthouse, is that it is just a fable and the idea of everyone having a purpose in this country of working hard to achieve financial success and happiness is just fantasy. There are a couple songs on this album um, about how having a purpose and knowing what you're going to be doing is a privilege that no one gets anymore, which is, again, a little bit more self-reflective than what used to be. This kind of time and analysis and everything is there's an inherent privilege in the sentiment and being able to look back with any sort of longing, even in being able to wrestle with an image of suburbia as a love-hate sort of environment. Like there is privilege in being able to analyze and feel something towards suburbia that a lot of groups do not have. Again, Maya, I, I personally could wrestle with my own mentality of suburbia, but again, that's that's a privilege I hold as a white woman. What is... What is your relationship with suburbia other than like what you saw on TV? Um, hmm. I guess what sums up my feelings on it the best is um, there came a point in high school wherein we were trying to do a lot of more activities, kind of bond us together. Like, you know, very much culturing, like sisterhood type deal before we all kind of just, you know, graduated and left. And one of the exercises was one of those classic kind of like diversity ones where you, where someone, the speaker, like, says, like, uh, something about identity, like, uh, if you feel like you are part of the LGBTQ community, like, you could stand or not stand, you know, based on agreement and things of that nature. And as the exercise kind of went on, 
there was a portion of that, that talked about, you know, family income. And first it went by um, the lower class, middle class, and upper class. And I was one of the only people in the room who stood up for lower class. So I was like, you know what? It's true. I'm here yeah. on scholarship. I haven't paid. Um, my family has not paid tuition in several years at this point. That's just, that's just, that's them the breaks for me personally. That's how I'm here. And when I sat down afterwards and the middle class was called up, the majority of the room stood up. And I remember thinking about exactly how funny that was to me because I graduated with, with 65 people. So we were all in that same room together. And that was about 50 people that stood up for, and these people were the children of, these were trust fund people who had wealthy parents who were who were things like neuroscientists and big time lawyers and um, the granddaughters of factory owners that were very successful. And like I'd been to their houses. These were not middle class developments. These were very much like small McMansions. And oh, like I can go into this house and um Another friend of mine who actually was probably kind of demonstrably middle class, she would she would make a game sometimes out of going to our, our friends who whose families are very clearly more upper class, and she would count the bathrooms. And there was one time she went <laughs> to the house, and there were eight bathrooms that she counted. That's so funny. And there were three bedrooms. <laughs> <laughs> like it was, it would be just insane little things like that, and and by the time. You know, the upper class was called up. Maybe maybe one girl had the actual legitimate courage to be like, yeah, I'm upper class. Like, y'all are wild for having stood up for middle. <laughs> but that, that really shows kind of, there's this odd white shame associated with discussing class. Oh, They wow. don't, people who are not middle class love to say that they are middle class, whether they're actually lower or upper, doesn't matter, it seems. Yep. There's yep. just this stigma attached to being lower or upper, and I think that's so funny. Uh, in the book The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein, he actually talks about words and the utilization of words in our modern dialect, and he talks about the word ghetto. And how it originally was used, like, it is, it really is talking about a location. It is a phrase of word that talks about a lo- an area that the, the government pushes low-income people into, where there is very little way to get out. It is, by all intents and definition, at its connotation, denotation. Which one is it? The connotation oh. refers to what it actually yeah. means? Connotation. And then the denotation is what it feels like, right? Yes. Okay. Hopefully we're right. Um, (laughs) If we're wrong, just switch those around. It's fine. But the the connotation is that... No, that doesn't sound right. Now I have to... Association? Is that what we're looking for here? No, I want the word. I want... Mm. I want... I want to know. (laughs) Connotation. An idea or feeling. So it's the other way around. Okay, uh, okay. So, so the we de- yeah, the denotation of the word ghetto is a place that the government has shoved people into with very little way to get out. 
that's that's what it means. Now, the connotation, on the other hand, is vastly different. And I there has become shame in that word and utilization of it over especially the last couple of years. Like I, this is probably partially where I grew up and everything. But I remember when I was growing up, people use the word ghetto a lot and not in a good way. Yeah, but, I would certainly agree with that. And As now... It's yeah. something that I did find funny. I was, when I was in a relationship with a ex of mine, um, who was very, um, very culturally Jewish, um, when the winter holidays would roll around, um, she and her mother would make jokes about sort of like the, uh, the ghetto being like the end cap, sort of like, here's some random stuff that we associate with Jewish people, like decoration wise, have at it. <laughs> And it would just be, like, a little, like, dreidel or, like, something that was just really kind of, like, oh, like, this is the bare bones of, like, pop cultural associations with what being Jewish means. Mm -hmm. And, like, it would be a common joke between them about, like, oh, like, that's the ghetto. But then she would always feel the need to, like, explain the joke to me because she was afraid of me being offended as a black person. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that was always something that I found very interesting. It, the, the connotation has changed drastically over the last couple of years. I, I heard a lot of it when I was a kid. I do not hear a lot of it now. Um, I don't, I don't hear that word thrown around as much as I used to. And I think that's important to note in how, again, how you just told, told me through that anecdote that white people are scared of being upper class and scared of being lower class. Words are so important and the utilization of them and the lack thereof is also very important. A little sidetracked, but I think still important to our statement. Um, back to Arcade Fires, the suburbs. This is the key thing here that I think is very important about modern suburbs is that, and this is, this is for a lot of white people, like I really do want to stress that if you grew up in the suburbs, I'm asking all of us to analyze what we were given and what we perceived from it. Because again, I, a white woman who grew up in, in what is close to the suburbs, have had to analyze my privilege of growing up as a white woman in the suburbs. And there, this is from Eric Eidelstein's book. There's also an awareness for many of us of a lack of difference, of how exclusive and small our world can be. We see those left out and ostracized, or we are those left out and ostracized. So Arcade Fires the Suburbs is talking about this kind of concept that as you get older, you start to realize how small your world is in the suburbs. You realize that like you don't know a lot about what's going on and you don't know a lot of people. And it's true. The suburbs is still predominantly white. It, it's getting a little bit more diverse, but like one token person of each racial group does not diversity make. If you are in this, this mental position, like it's important to note, like, did you actually go to school with black people or did you know the one or two only black people in your school and they had to live a very different experience than you did because they were the only one or two black people in school so instead of living in diversity they were a token for that uh, maya again you well how do you feel about that i mean that's 
that's yet another funny thing about the school that I went to was um, to, you know, two summers ago when, you know, COVID kicked off at the same time as all the, the riots nationwide. Um, one of the like little kind of offshoots that happened was a lot of splintering of, of relationships and friend groups um, between the people that I was, you know, that I graduated with. Because as we've gotten older, you know, the ties that bind due to, you know, the proximity and like common, you know, little teenage social issues that everyone deals with, like I kind of worn off. It was just kind of like, well, do, do we want to maintain these friendships because we actually like each other now? Like once that's kind of worn off, it's a lot boiled down to what are your political beliefs and how do they mesh or jar against how you see me as an individual? And in a lot of cases, not for myself necessarily, but for a lot of other white friends that I still have, they were really finding that they had a lot of boundaries and line to draw in the sand that they had when we were younger yep. that were very important to them personally not just aside from the relationships they had with you know minorities and other people of color and now just something that I found so interesting to observe the kind of inner turmoil and feelings of guilt and weirdness about having associated very familiarly and strongly with people that now espouse very radically different viewpoints from them in our adulthood. There is uh, a reoccurring sense of disappointment in growing up at coming out of the suburbs. Uh, moving on, I'm going to only talk about this for a moment, but that was perfect movement. Uh, Chris Ware's Building Stories. It's a very interesting comic. Um, Building Stories features a never-named woman who eventually becomes a suburban mother, presenting her life over decades. It's about expressing the everyday experience of a woman from within the space of a stable family. This is in, this particular comic is in a board box. It comes with newspaper clippings, loose papers, an actual board game type thing. It's supposed to be things that you would find around a suburban home. And Hilary Shute, in her book, Why Comics, states, Building Stories has been a sensation. It shows how comics can, in fact, present moving stories about regular people living everyday lives and make these stories feel vivid and intimate. She also states, well-appointed and feeling alone, the classic disappointment of the suburbs. Building Stories addresses its reader, claims suburban existence as its domain, and shows from the outset with its diagram of domesticity how comics can reveal intricacies in the psychological importance of space. I don't want to I don't want to land too long on this because I do want to get to our next type topic but I did want to talk about Chris Ware's building stories cuz one thing he shows is how the suburbs have time and space. There are a lot of panels in this particular comic that don't say anything but show you what living in sequences is and it also demands a lot of its readers like you have to open it up and take out the pieces and decide what you're doing like this is time spent on this particular comic time that is a luxury as again stated by way earlier when we were talking about pet sounds that time is something that white suburban teens get to have people living in the suburbs who don't have to go get jobs and spend all their time and money doing that 
even in, and it's not necessarily, this comic is not necessarily analyzing what is wrong with the suburbs. It's supposed to be more of a case study on living in the suburbs and just a statement on it. But again, this is a, an unnamed white woman who lives with her white husband and has a white child. If there is something, there is also something that it is not. And so these depictions of the suburbs and the suburbs itself is so saturated in this whiteness that it this sense of disappointment of living in the suburbs and and almost regretting li living in the suburbs is a privilege to have and it it's again it's not necessarily that the suburbs itself is bad by while it has a rough foundation, by and large, it's still just a collection of buildings. But what I'm asking from you as the audience is that I need you all to analyze what these things mean. You're, you, I want you all to take the time to think about the deeper meanings behind things that you just accept. I'm, it's not inherently bad, but you need to know what it means. Anything to add to that, Maya? No, I'm just, you're right. I'd like to hear more. Yeah, I, and this is uh, somewhat tangential, and this is not necessarily backed up by evidence, but this is somewhat of a personal anecdote, is one thing that I have found myself increasingly frustrated with myself and other white people is this fear of being wrong or seen as being racist when inherently we are privileged individuals who grew up under that privilege and we have we being white individuals obviously we have the privilege and time to analyze and reanalyze what we have done and what we are doing but the key thing is that we will all be racist at some point but the thing that we have to do is not pretend like we weren't or avoid situations where we might become racist by avoiding black people or avoiding things that would do that, but instead say sorry and then learn from those mistakes. It's, it's all about growth and understanding your place in these things. You don't, you don't have to drop the suburbs and say that the suburbs are racist, but you do have to say that the suburbs started racist and we have room to grow. That was a little tangential and a personal thing of mine that I've been brewing on. But the long and short of it is that if you are white, you have to be willing to learn and you have to be willing to apologize. But if you don't do either of those things and spend all your time trying to avoid something, you're not helping the situation. Uh, tangent aside, let's talk about depictions of suburbia. I'm going to go through a list of things that are suburbs, and then I'm going to finish off with the last two. So things that are suburbs that we just accept and understand. Peanuts, Calvin and Hobbes, Blondie, for better or worse, Garfield. These are all comics that we've seen in Sunday comics. So again, another thing that is inherently white. Um, TV shows, The Simpsons, Daria, Big Mouth, King of the Hill, The Flintstones, Venice for Rick and Morty. The suburbs has kind of been noted as a place where you don't have to say greater things. If you have a city, you usually have to depict and talk about a lot of stuff, or at least that's the philosophy. The suburbs is like, this is the suburbs and kids live here. There, there are deeper things, but that's the start of that. But let's talk about the subversions. We're moving on to the boondocks. 
Uh, one thing I, before we move on to the boondocks, this is something that was in the original script, but didn't quite make the cut, was I was going to talk about Get Out and suburban horror. I decided not to do that, but it is important to note that there is a subgenre of suburbia where people of color view it as a backdrop for horror, which is true and something that should be analyzed, but I will not be doing that. But that is a statement that is that should be made. Um, anything to add to that in particular, Maya? I think I think what what makes black people associate the suburbs with horror is kind of that um, hmm. part of it definitely does have to do with sort of those uh, uh, what is it? What are those movies? Uh, the ones, those, the that 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 specific genre of movie that's like very said, kind of like either like around, like a bit before the civil rights movement, like really kind of kicks off, where it's like this is this is this family's black struggle, and here are the tragedies that happen as a result of the local clan presence or, or oh, things of that yeah. nature. Yeah. Um. Those, those, those hooded white men <laughs> were coming from the suburbs. <laughs> yeah. Even if the suburbs weren't quite what they, you know, would become at post the GI Bill. That's, that's kind of the vibe we're talking about here. Yeah. And there's and- always kind of been this overarching idea associated with the suburbs of there being this kind of hidden insidiousness. Beneath that, like, pristine white picket fence, there's... Things aren't quite right here. There's... there's Because there's so much time to do so many things for these white people, it so easily can turn in a different direction. And there's a ton of media outside of that, too, that is, like, white people permeating that idea, too, that there's something hidden beneath the, the surface something malicious uh there's a comic called hole holes something black hole that's it it's black hole by charles burns where he talks about basically it's an std that goes around that turns you into it like monstrous you have some kind of deformation and it shows people ostracizing people for that um so this is not like the, there is that there is this reoccurring theme that there's something hidden by the behind the perfectness of it. But the key difference is that usually suburban horror made by black people has to do with the permeated racism that makes up segregation in general. But again, that's a different argument. We're gonna finish off with the boondocks. So a little bit of background. The Boondocks was originally created by Aaron McGregor. It ran from 1996 to 2006. It was originally created for Hitlist.com, This we're talking about the comics, and eventually gained traction, always aiming to be a television show by the creator. I think this is important to state, because while it did start as a comic, and usually a lot of... There's a lot of things that are often lost in translation between a comic and a TV show, where people... If you only watch the TV show, you're missing out something that was in the comic. But Aaron McGrutter, since the very beginning, wanted this to be a TV show. That's where he wanted this to go. So the popularity of the Boondocks as a TV show is very important because that was his original aim anyways. It follows the characters Huey and Riley Freeman, who who got pulled from Chicago to live in the suburbs with their grandfather. 
It satirizes the suburbs and views it through a mainly black lens. And it has received numerous complaints and controversies over the years for Aaron McGregor's left-wing approach, most notably following 9-11. That's my only notes on the boondocks. So Maya, let's talk about it. Let's talk about the boondocks. What are you... What are your opinions on it? Let's start right there. Let's start at the surface. Oh, how I love the boondocks. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> the thing about the boondocks for me, I, I've never been very good at watching TV shows. I, I'm still not. Hey, I have such a love affair with, with the boondocks. And um, I've never been very good at watching TV shows just fully, just straight through, cohesively. As you know, it should be, but um, that is that is a show wherein like I could see clips. I've seen full episodes, obviously. It's, just, it's something I've always watched intermittently on and off over the years. But I just there's something so enjoyable about it from the standpoint of just looking at it as this is a show that is both satirical and full of very culturally specific um, black humor. <laughs> huh? I. What fascinates me so much, I really like the boondocks too, from almost an analytical sense. It's very funny, first of all. But I've always had a soft spot for shows or material or things that teach you something. I think learning should be fun, the whole point of this podcast. Um, (laughs) And that show is a wonderful case study on how to teach people something while they have fun. Because not only do they have a ton of sociological and philosophical approaches to the episodes, but it also shows you very distinctly how people live and very bluntly. It does not pull any punches. It doesn't. And that's that's what's so fun about it. That's precisely what's so fun about it. Uh. I can't remember exactly where I read or heard this, but there was um, one of, someone once made a distinction about the difference between, I guess, white and black humor, racially. Just, you know, it's a sweeping generalization, but there was a point there in what this person was trying to say, wherein they were saying that with white people, white people are not inherently honest, if that makes sense, with each other. Yeah, There's this sort of, there's too much overcomplication involved in social interactions. Mm-hmm. There's there's passive aggression. It's it's all kind of like, what are you not saying to me? Mm-hmm. What am I supposed to pick up? It's very subtextual. But between black people, when we're talking to each other, there's kind of just sort of like, all right, we're gonna do away with all the BS, mm-hmm. and like we're gonna get straight to the quick of this as easily and as bluntly as possible forget however you feel about it we're gonna get to the meat of this mm-hmm. and then we're gonna move on and that's something that as as someone who's gone to private schools that were majority white for most of their life the boondocks really was a kind of breath of fresh air because mm-hmm. it was just kind of it, it dives into the nitty-gritty of this is a thing that we see as an issue but here's how we're also finding a way to find joy and laughter in this throughout something that is painful or or hurtful or just something to be judged morally yeah. for whatever reason. I, I think the also interesting thing about the boondocks is that it almost each episode almost runs like a analysis paper where the main character, Huey, usually starts the episode where 
he says something and then spends the rest of the episode backing it up. Like in in a good analytical paper, you're supposed to state that you have your topic sentence. And then if I were to look at the paper and then be like, I'm not reading all that bullshit, I should be able to read the first sentence and know exactly what's going to happen. Almost every episode of The Boondocks runs like that, where they tell you right at the top what the whole fucking episode's about. And then you spend the whole episode being like, well, yeah, you're right. Okay. Yeah, all right. Yeah, you're right. This is this is a bit of a um, divergence. But the last episode of The Boondocks that I did watch was The Trial of Robert Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> as terrible as this is, what makes it funny is that I watched this with a, um, a white history major friend. And as we were going about <laughs> it, we kind of realized, oh, this episode came out in 2005. <laughs> yep. So yep. it took, it, it took that long for, for results? <laughs> yep. Um, it's, it's so funny. And, and like, like I said, like anything, the analytical papers run like that too, but good books also run the same way. Like any book worth their salt is going to tell you exactly what it is off the top. Uh, Mario Vargasiosa's Conversation of the Cathedral is one of my favorite books, and it starts with my favorite sentence. This is why Peru is fucked up. That's the first sentence of the whole book. Mm -hmm. And you know, you know what you're getting into then. You're like, oh, who? okay, all right, all right. Let's learn about why Peru is fucked up. And that's exactly what it does. The Boondocks does that. Like, they start off every episode with, well, white people really do some shit. And then you're like, okay, let's learn about this. What? Tell me, what do white people do? And then you learn about, like, the capitalistic greed of the white person, the exploitation of the black body. Like, whatever it is that that episode is talking about, it tells you right at the top of it which is so entertaining, but it's also a very clear subversion of another thing about white media where they don't really say anything. Like, white suburbia is supposed to be a backdrop where you talk about other things. Like, you're supposed to talk about in, um, in a lot of the big TV shows like The Simpsons. It, ta it takes place in what is white suburbia, and the episode usually revolves around something else because, you know, white suburbia is is statement enough. But the boondocks doesn't do that. There's always something to say about suburbia. It's not just a backdrop. It is another location that needs to be analyzed. And so that's the other bit of this is that subversion is the the actual analysis of the suburbs. It's only like it is satire, don't get me wrong, but half the satire is actually taking the time to analyze what the suburbs mean. And again, through throughout all of this, like, end and all be all, it, it started with the GI Bill. It started with a racist bill that had created the suburbs. And it's ending with this satire of the suburbs that actually takes the time to analyze it. So as we as we come to this near the end, like the 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 full culmination, starting from the GI Bill, working our way through it in the analytics, ending with the anal analytics, ending with the boondocks, and it's approach to the suburbs um where are we ending maya the suburbs are still white <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah you're not wrong <laughs> the suburbs has become a very different definition than it was when it was originally a creation 
and it almost is that the suburbs is a is less of an actual distinct location and more a specific set of uh, like a type of an area that needs to meet certain guidelines like yes the suburbs by urban planning definition is like the the outside of a metropolitan area the suburbs is outside of urban living the connotation of it is kind of this distinction of segregation lack of diversity issues within it these white picket fences this hidden ulterior thing like all of these things all of these things that we associate with the suburbs is almost a checklist of what has then created the suburbs it it's not as clear-cut as we all want it to be like the suburbs is not just these white picket fences and houses that all look exactly the same it's a little bit more complex than that and we've made it more complex um but it is also somewhat of a state of mind it's people who grow up in this small world and it's important to analyze that smallness because the world is so much bigger and the least that people who grew up in the suburbs can do is take the time to analyze what growing up in that area meant for them and also like it's fun to analyze things, so take the time to do it. But also, man, it's hard to sometimes look back and think about how generational wealth started in 1940 and basically ended. That's not entirely true, but man, Maya, <laughs> bro, I, pff, my parents aren't getting special government loans. <laughs> well, mine certainly aren't. <laughs> oh my gosh. I think what's fun to me about just thinking about sort of class and the suburbs is that there really is a lot of sociological research talking about these class stratifications and like what they really mean in terms of further um, just categorizing people. <laughs> mm hmm. Because, like, one of, the, one of the theories we always talk about, especially when it comes to crime and demons, as well as other areas, is, um, gosh, I wish I remembered who said this, because I've learned this in a crime and deviance course in juvenile delinquency and what have you. But essentially, there is a certain school of thought within sociology that talks about the ideas surrounding um, what are middle class norms and what are lower class norms and how people are kind of caught between deciding to choose one or the other and how that, the, how that influences life plans and feelings about the self and so on and so forth. And I think that's just another really important piece of this. Yeah, you, like I, like, I stated is that you need to analyze what growing up and that has done to you and that's that's the other half of it is that your unlearning things means you have to realize what you learned it's very that is very fascinating like we didn't really talk too much about the sociology of the suburbs because I wanted to talk more about the culture of it and the kind of the cultural output of it there is a lot of studies on the sociology of the suburbs and what that means I think from there, like, that brings us right back where the suburbs are white. So, Maya, let's get a closing sentence. Like, one thing that ties it all together. Give me, give me something poppy. <laughs> hmm. Don't just laugh. Give me a sentence. 
I'm, I'll give you a sentence. I need, <laughs> I need a little marinating time. Excuse you, me, Sam. You, you gotta put yourself on the on the grill. Bro, you don't have the fortitude to caramelize yourself. I don't know what that even means, but... Uh, it takes a long time to caramelize onions. Like, you have to you have to sit there for a while. I love caramelizing have... onions. Thank you very much. You know my love for cooking. But, um, in a nutshell, I would say that there's this perversive, pervasive idea that... You know, the suburbs are white, and that is true. But it's also important to realize that that's changing. But the aesthetic is so overwhelming, and all the associations that come with the suburbs are so kind of strongly uh, written into, I guess, sort of our social understanding of what that like kind of means, generally speaking, that it's really hard to separate kind of environment from that mm-hmm. it did that make sense <laughs> it did i absolutely agree i think the suburbs for white people is vastly different from any kind of other cultural group that is living there and i think that it kind of encapsulates that along with many other things um no that was a good closing sentence all right uh and maya one more thing give me if We'll we'll end with a a silly sentence. Um, what phase of the moon is the most attractive? Oh, full, obviously. Nice. We we do love a thick woman. We do. We do. Us. Look at all them craters. <laughs> <laughs> Woof. Uh, this has been Sam Explains It All. I thank you all for listening. Feel free to follow the Twitter, follow me on Instagram, YouTube, uh, Spotify, wherever you listen, and tell your friends about it. I also have a Kofi that if you wanted to donate a little bit of money, even just a dollar or two, just to help me get my books, I'd really appreciate that because a lot of this research requires a lot of in knowledge and books that I need to acquire. But other than that, please just tell your friends about it. And I really hope you enjoyed listening. And Maya, will will you be providing any social media or anything? Or are you just here to hang out? I'm just here to hang out. All right. Well, you'll probably hear Maya in future episodes. But otherwise, thank you so much for being here. And as always, this has been Sam Explains It All. Thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful rest of your day.